Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. The book of Acts. Uh, to the ends of the earth. We're in uh, chapter 13, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. Chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed, sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimaeus, Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, "'You son of the devil?' You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So I was at the uh, Stroud Rodeo yesterday. Uh, it was, I was just telling uh, Ducky and Mia before, it was um, probably my favourite event of the Rodeo. It was uh, actually a bunch of people were here. I saw the Murcots and the Hallets were there. Um, a bunch of things going on. My favourite was probably the, um, the bull wrestling. If you want a good video of it, I think Brad Hallett has one. Basically what happens is you're riding along on this, on this horse as fast as you possibly can. A little a bull car, well a bull's yearling pretty much, comes along beside you and you've got to try and jump off your horse at full speed, crash tackle this bull to the ground and you, and you only get a score if you fully crash tackle the bull all the way to the ground. Um, it's kind of brutal actually. Um, there's like, the rodeo has like, five-year-olds competing. I kid you not, riding steers and all sorts of crazy stuff. I, I, um, I was kind of blown away. But there's all sorts of crazy, bull riding, bronco riding, the whole lot. I was actually, I was thinking about not going, but this week um, something really cool happened. I was, um, for the last two weeks, I added a guy to my prayer list, a guy called Chris. And um, Chris lives in Newcastle. We went to med school together. And Chris is um, he's a, a doctor locally, he's a pediatrician. And um, we were very good friends in Newcastle, but I haven't talked to him for five, over five years, it's been since we've talked. 
And, uh, and he, just, he just came to my mind. And I thought, I'm going to pray for Chris. So I added him to my prayer list um, two weeks ago. And then, I kid you not, two days ago, he texted me and said, hey, I'm, I'm coming to Stroud for the right day. I do want to catch up. Um, which was just mind-blowing. Uh, and I was umming and ahhing about not going because there was stuff to do um, uh, before that. Obviously, once I got that message, I'm like, oh, thanks, God. Okay, yeah, let's, let's go. I had an, an awesome day. Um, and what's really cool, actually, he, he does a day of fortnight in Raymond Terrace. Um, and so we're going to have lunch together and, and catch up maybe once, once every fortnight or so, hopefully. We'll see what the Lord does there. Um, but it's a cool reminder that God actually answers prayers. Uh, which is, and again, something we'll be looking at today. But I'm sitting at this rodeo yesterday, and at one point in the day, I looked around uh, this crowd of hundreds. It's as big as, um, as Stroud ever gets. Stroud is a very small town. The, 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 the population of Stroud, I think, more than doubles through, through that weekend. Uh, and I looked around at one point, and I looked at all these people, and I, and I had this slightly depressing thought. I thought, hundreds of people here don't know Jesus. Hundreds of people here don't know Jesus. Uh, there's all sorts of crazy stuff that goes on, but it's, it, was, it was kind of... Do you have those moments when you're at a shopping centre or you're at an airport and you look around and you go, there's a lot of people here who don't know Jesus. Um, and it was a reminder to me that we've got a job to do. And this is what Acts is about. We have a job to do to the ends of the earth. People need to know Jesus. Um, and I think in Australia, we're seeing a decline of, of, of people attending church. Uh, and it's, it's got makings in history hundreds of years ago. Um, but there are places and times where the trend has been bucked. There was a time 2,000 years ago where there was next to nobody in the church worldwide. And it's now billions of people who know Jesus. So that's the title of our series as we go through the book of Acts, To the Ends of the Earth. It's taken from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I think we've got it up there somewhere. But basically, uh, Jesus says, you will take this gospel to the ends of the earth. Maybe it's not there. It doesn't matter. You can look it up. But I want to do, what I want to do today, uh, we've got a, a, a passage that we're going to be working through together, and I want to try and work through that text together and then um, provide a little commentary as we go. But uh, so that we're all on the same page, once we've worked through that text, I want to come back and maybe have a chat about some of the key themes that I think this text teaches us today. But let me give you a really brief outline of these three main themes, and there's this other kind of side topic that we'll be looking at as well. So the three main themes that we'll see in this outline are seek, that's verses 1 and 2, go, verses 3 to 5, and overcome, verses 6 to 12. And there's another side theme is there that we're going to tackle as well, and the side theme is fasting, which you will have seen or heard when Simon read the passage out. So let's get straight into the text, Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. But at this point, we need to recap briefly where it is that we find ourselves in today's passage. One thing we can't miss today, I think, when you just hear that passage, that whole passage read out, is again, the centrality of the Holy Spirit. 
in all that God does through his people in the early church. The centrality of the Holy Spirit, so much so that as we've said before, whilst the book of the Acts is is officially called the Acts of the Apostles, it could just as easily be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we've seen, the Acts of the Holy Spirit as it takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So that's what we've seen. We've seen the events of Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was poured out into the early church and through bold preaching and frankly through miracles, thousands of people came to believe in Jesus. At this point, this was all just going on in Jerusalem, right? But then still in Jerusalem, we see what life was like in the early church. Acts chapter 2, they were getting together, prayer, fellowship, breaking of bread, apostles teaching, and then there was this radical new way of doing life together, a radical new way of, of loving each other and of living in a community of love. And again, we see people come to know the Lord, come to know the Lord. And so this opposition, though, to this teaching, the opposition starts to mount because these religious leaders, these people whose position is threatened by the growth of the church, these religious leaders stand up and say, we can't have this happening. And so there's opposition and, and people are told to be quiet and stop preaching. And this opposition eventually it culminates in Stephen, one of the deacons standing up and giving this indicting sermon on the religious leaders. And he became the first martyr of the church in Acts chapter 7. And from this point, a great persecution arose, the text tells us, with this kind of fledgling church in Jerusalem breaking up and being scattered all over Judea and Samaria. Now, what looked bad for the early church turns out to be exactly what's needed for the fulfillment of the next phase of Jesus' command. Because while a fledgling church was scattered to Judea and Samaria, they take the message with them, don't they? And in particular, we see Philip because Philip takes the message to Samaria, this kind of quasi-Jewish people just to the north of Judah, Judea at the time. That was in chapter 8. But then since chapter 9, something shifted. Because since chapter 9, we've seen everything just blow up. Paul, the great persecutor of the church, is converted in this dramatic fashion. And from this side of history, we know that Paul is going to be instrumental in the spread of the gospel, not just to Jews, but to Gentiles all over the known world. And then in chapter 10, we go back to Peter, but this time Peter's doing something different. Peter goes down to Cornelius, do you remember? He goes down to Cornelius, because Cornelius, they had these visions, and God orchestrates the first non-Jewish convert to Christianity. So up until that time, you had to be Jewish first. Even if you were a Gentile, you had to convert to Judaism first, which meant circumcision, the whole lot, right? You had to do all this stuff. But this is, Cornelius was the first one to be able to enter the church without having to become Jewish first. He and his whole house and all the people who heard the message, it says, were saved. And then chapter 11, they talk about this new way of doing things with these uncircumcised Gentiles being able to come into the church And then another benefit we see of the scattering of people under the persecution of Stephen was that we see people saved in Antioch, in Phoenicia, and in Cyprus. These three cities, do you know anything that they have in common? None of them are in Israel. Not one. Antioch, Phoenicia, and Cyprus, none of them are in Israel. But there are all areas outside of Israel that have large Jewish populations. 
And so we see this revolutionary shift from from Jews in Jerusalem to non-Jews outside of Jerusalem. And in chapter 11, this amazing fellow called Barnabas. His nickname means a son of encouragement. And he was sent there to Antioch from Jerusalem. And and he he finds that everything's actually going really well. And so he just encourages them. But he goes and he grabs Paul from Tarsus a couple of days' journey away. And he brings him back. And then there's this famine in Jerusalem. And Paul and Barnabas are actually sent down to Jerusalem to help out. And that's where we were last week. When we got to chapter 12 and and we moved back down to Jerusalem again from Antioch. And and Dan did just an amazing job of getting through an entire chapter. And really, um, and we saw this bloke, Herod Agrippa. And and as Dan explained, there are these, these contrasts. It was a book of, there was a chapter of contrasts. Um, now, Herod Agrippa is not a nice dude, right? He, um, he's gaining favour with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem by basically giving Christians a hard time. He's, he's the client king, you know, he's appointed, appointed by Rome to be the client king of, of Judea and Samaria. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Remember what he did? He tried to kill baby Jesus. Uh, not a good start to the family. He is the nephew of Herod Antipas. Remember what he did? He killed John the Baptist, right? So can you imagine the family barbecues that these guys are having? You know, it's not, it's not a pretty place to be. But, but this is what's going on in Jerusalem, right? Uh, there's bad stuff happening. But these contrasts, James is killed. James, do you remember who James was? James, James, Peter, James and John, the three closest to Jesus. And James is killed by Herod Agrippa. Killed. Yet Peter is captured and, and set free, miraculously set free. He's rescued. Peter's rescued. That's a contrast. We see the, the church faithfully just praying, faithfully praying for God to deliver Peter. And then, on the other hand, they don't even believe when he rocks up at the door. They're like, ah, it's probably not him. A contrast. And we see Agrippa, he tried to promote himself as God, right? He tried to put himself out there as God. And then God says, uh, no. I'm God, you're dead. Uh, and so he kills him, the worms eat him, all that jazz. Um, and we had this book of quotes actually in, in our house growing up. Um, there was a really cool quote that I used to love. It was, um, it was just a book of funny quotes, whatever. Um, but one of the quotes was, uh, it quoted the famous words of um, Friedrich Nietzsche, Nietzsche, um, Friedrich Nietzsche, who said, uh, God is dead. God is dead. And the next line was a quote from God. It said, Nietzsche is dead. <laughs> I just thought, that's, that's great. That's a good reminder of what's involved when you set yourself up against the maker of the universe. It doesn't end well. Um, and then we saw this final sneaky verse in chapter 12, setting us up for today's passage, where it says that Paul and Barnabas, they returned from Jerusalem to Antioch, but they brought this other bloke, John Mark, otherwise known as Mark, with them. Let me, let me just point out that by this time, it's 44 AD, 44 AD. So it's about 14 years after the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of the church, 14 years. The book of Acts spans a period of 30 years, so we're kind of halfway through the history of Acts. But if chapters 1 to 8 are the origin story of the church, and chapters 9 to 12 are the transition period, then the culmination of the book is chapters 13 to the end. It's the culmination of that transition. Pretty much the entirety of the rest of the book from here out is concerning these three missionary trips of Paul the Apostle. Today we're going to see the first and the shortest of these missionary trips kick off. Uh, They'll go eventually from Antioch to Cyprus, from Cyprus 
to Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then I'll go back to Antioch again, and that's the first trip. So that's where we're at right now. We all need to get to Cyprus today. But let's go back to our text. Here we are in Antioch. There's Barnabas, Paul, Simeon, Lucius, Menean, and they're described as prophets and teachers in verse 1. Apparently, these are the leaders of this fledgling Antioch church. At this point in time, there's still limited instructions on how to govern a church, right? We're going to see in the next chapter that the model would eventually be rolled out to the church broadly that was seen in Jerusalem, where you had these elders appointed for oversight and then deacons appointed uh, to carry on various other kinds of work. At Calvary Chapel, we call these deacons our ministry leaders, our ministry leaders. The word deacon in Greek just means servant. Um, And I I think it really quite aptly describes what goes on in Calvary Chapel, to be honest. You've got people like Mel and James and and Kendall and um, Dan and so many people um, and and Paul and stepping up to lead a various area within the church to serve the body, to serve the body of Christ. Um, But at this point in time, they hadn't got to that sort of structure yet. So what we see here is that these, these, these teachers and these prophets have really taken on the mantle of leadership in the church. Uh, and so they, they get together, what do they do? Let's have a look. Now, actually, one thing before we do that, one thing to note about this group of people is their diversity. They're multinational, they're multi-ethnic, they're multi-class, and it's possible that they're comprising both Gentiles and Jewish believers. See, Barnabas was from Cyprus. Simeon, called Niger, which means black, by the way, was likely from Africa, or had African roots at least. Lucius of Cyrene was from Cyrene in the north of Africa, actually in Libya, where the floods are going on at the moment. Let's keep praying for those guys. Um, and then Menean. Uh, now, that single Greek word that you'll see in your verse there that is translated as lifelong friends, or it might have a few different translations, it's, uh, it's the word syntrophos. It means um, fed together. Uh, and so it literally means they were nursed together as babies. Now, it probably literally, it might not be meaning that necessarily. It had this kind of metaphorical usage as well. Um, but whatever the relationship looked like, Menean was very close with Herod the Tetrarch, which is Herod Antipas. The one who killed John the Baptist. Okay, so he's been saved from that situation. But, but see, he's a man of considerable influence. We know that Barnabas had money. We heard earlier in Acts that he gave um, property to the church. And so you've got, you've got all these different these barriers being broken down in the first generation of the church. You see racial barriers, you see ethnic barriers, you see national barriers, you see belief barriers being broken down as people come together in the early church. Um, and the last thing before we keep going on this text is that we probably need to mention something about the role of prophet here. And now at Calvary Chapel, we believe in the ongoing uh, possibility of all of the spiritual gifts. Okay? We certainly don't have time to address this in detail today. It's not the main thrust of the text. But just to say that we believe that God still acts through all of the spiritual gifts. Um, but there's only one infallible revelation, and that revelation is Scripture. And so... We believe that prophecy is for today, but we believe that it must always be subject to the truth of Scripture. But if you personally want to get a head start on reading about prophecy, I recommend 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14. It's a great place to just get a little bit of a, a, a primer on it. Um, now, there's various different kinds of prophecy. 
Um, in the New Testament, uh, we see foretelling. So we just saw it with Agabus, foretelling the, the uh, famine in Jerusalem. And then there's uh, forthtelling. So foretelling and forthtelling, which is really just telling forth the truth about what God wants, wants to say to this particular group at this particular time. But these leaders, they're gathered together in Antioch. And what are they doing? Verse 2. Let's read it together. If you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back as well. I encourage you to follow along because it's a really great habit to be in. While they were worshipping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. These leaders are seeking God's will. This is the first of three of the, the first of the three main themes of our passage today. Seek. In other words, seek from the Spirit. It's a wonderful thing to know Scripture. It is. It's a wonderful thing to have the discipline of prayer, to be in fellowship, to be serving. But the Christian life is by its nature a relationship. It's a relationship with a king. And this king has plans for us. And if we don't know his will, we can't do his will. So we need to be able to discern what his will is. Now, a part of that is understanding the written word, the Bible that we have in front of us. But that's not the complete picture. The reality is that we also need to hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice. So that's our first theme, and we're going to come back and touch on that a little later. Seek, seek, seek from the Holy Spirit. Seek God's will. But specifically here, we have Paul and Barnabas being set apart for this work, don't we? In verse 3, it says, Then after pray, fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What I want to do here is maybe just take a, a brief do, detour, if we can, from the main points of this passage and, and take the opportunity simply to notice the importance that Luke puts on the topic of fasting. Did you notice that the leaders here, how many times did they fast? Twice. Not once. Twice. Once for discerning God's will and another time in preparation for the send-off. Why do you reckon Luke is sharing this with us? Why do you think he bothers to put this in? Why not just say they heard God's leading? I think fasting is, is a spiritual discipline that has been neglected by the church in the West. I, I really do. Um, we seem to have forgotten its importance. Now, I know many people here fast, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm not saying I've, I'm particularly good at it either, but I think it's something that as a church, we need to be thinking about a bit more. See, Jesus fasted. And it's true that Jesus' disciples were criticised, weren't they, for not fasting? Um, and then Jesus said things about wineskins, etc. But what, remember what Jesus said? He said, um, you don't fast while the bridegroom's still with you. You're going to fast later. So there's an implication that they're going to fast later. And I think, at least for the leaders at Antioch, they think that that time is now. The time had come to be fasting again. See, they had come to a point where they weren't sure where they were going to go next. The next bit hadn't been revealed to them. We come across these questions all the time in church, all the time. Just this week, um, the three elders, uh, myself and Dave and Tony, were discussing uh, our budget. We're discussing how much of our budget do we want to allocate towards uh, missions, towards missions giving. It's sitting somewhere around 10%, um, something along those lines. And we, I mean, a small church, overheads are pretty high in terms of the total comparison, etc. Blah, 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 blah. Our end result was we kind of, as we're thinking and praying about it, we think, well, 30% is a good goal to aim for. But how do we get there? 
which verse do I read to go, how are we going to get to 30% of our giving ends up in missions? There's no verse. Now, there's principles, and principles are great. Don't get me wrong. Principles are fantastic. But if we're going to know what God wants us to do, we need, we need to be able to ask and hear from God what to do. It seems to me that these leaders at Antioch were desperate enough to hear God's voice that they were willing to give up an empty, willing to give up a full tummy to do it, willing to run on empty. They were, they were desperate enough. So my question is, what are we desperate enough for? What are we desperate enough? Are you desperate enough to see the gospel go forth to people who've never heard it before? Are you desperate for God's power to work in your life and in the world around you? See, Charles Spurgeon said, our seasons of fasting and prayer at the tabernacle, that's their church, have been high days indeed. Never has heaven's gate stood wide and never have our hearts been nearer the central glory. And likewise, Jonathan Edwards, who was an early famous Puritan preacher, was often described as clutching onto his pulpit while preaching because his body was so weak from fasting. He was instrumental, Jonathan Edwards, in causing the movement that became known as the Great Awakening, which changed millions of lives and changed our world. But see, notice one thing about the fasting we see here. It's corporate, isn't it? It's corporate. In other words, it's done in community. I think when, when Christians do fast today, we tend to fast privately because we don't want to brag about it. Um, and that's a, that's a, fair, it's a fair thing to think about. We need to think about that. We don't, we don't want to do it for the sake of our ego, um, but it's corporate. So we probably need to just get over that. Uh, so my question is, what are we going to do with this? Well, I think if we're going to take Scripture seriously, I think it means doing what Scripture teaches both individually as well as corporately. So I wonder if some of you maybe would join me this week in fasting and praying. I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, planning to fast and to pray this Tuesday. And I want to continue for the next three to four weeks, um, specifically that our fellowship would see people come to know Jesus for the first time. So I wonder if you would consider joining me in that goal of fasting on Tuesday. Um, it would be great if you could maybe let me know via text or come, ha- come and have a chat and we can, we can send around some encouraging things to be praying for. But that's not the main point of today's message, actually. Um, although I do think it's important. It, it is a side point. It's, um, it's, it's not the, the main thrust. So let's keep reading verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. This was a town on the coast, kind of down river from Antioch, about 25 kilometers away. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, that is a city on the east coast of the island of Cyprus, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. Then they had John, that's John Mark, to assist them. First, notice that phrase, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. They went. They sailed, it says. They proclaimed, it says. They're all doing words. They're all action verbs. It wasn't enough for them just to hear something from God. And then read another book or listen to another podcast. They were doers of the word, not just hearers, James 1.22. Doers of the word, not just hearers. And this hits our second theme for the day, that is go. Or if you want to expand it out, go with the Spirit. So we are not only to seek direction from the Spirit, but we are also to go with the Spirit. But did you see where they went? Did they go to Carthage? 
one of the big cities, Ephesus, one of the big cities, Alexandria, Rome, these are the, the, along with Antioch, these are the five biggest cities in the Roman Empire. No, the Holy Spirit sends them to Cyprus. It's not exactly one of the top five. In fact, it's not even one of the top 50 biggest cities in the Roman Empire at the time. It'd be like me deciding to evangelize Australia, having a grand, glorious plan to do so, and then God says, okay, go to Mudgee. And I'd be like, okay, Mudgee. Fair enough. I mean, Mudgee's a nice place, but it doesn't really fit my idea of the great, glorious plans to reach the whole of Australia. But see, God's plans are not our plans. Repeatedly through the rest of this book, actually, we'll see Paul's plans to get to Rome are constantly thwarted, constantly thwarted. He doesn't get there till like chapter 27. Right up until the end, he keeps not being able to get to Rome. But when he gets there, it's exactly the right time, exactly the right time. Now, we're also seeing this John Mark guy, aren't we? And so a quick, bio, super quick bio snapshot. John Mark, better known just as Mark. He would go on to write the Gospel of Mark which is believed to have come from his close association with Peter, which we saw in chapter 12. In chapter 12, when when Peter goes back to a house after getting out of prison, he goes to the house of John Mark's mother. So Peter and Mark get to know each other. Mark writes the gospel that probably comes from Peter's lips. If you read Mark, it's all full of action. It's like, the Greek word is euthos, it just means and then immediately and immediately and immediately, it just follows along. So Mark is the guy that writes the gospel that Peter probably told him and it kind of makes sense, okay? Because Peter's a guy of action too. So Peter and Mark are close. But Mark uh, is also, um, has a bit of conflict with Paul later on in the book of Acts. We're going to come across that. But we also get to see some really cool reconciliation towards the end of Acts as well, which is also kind of nice. Um, so that's Mark. But did you notice that they proclaimed, where did they proclaim the word of God first? Where did they go first? The synagogue. That's right. Why did they go to the synagogue? This is a, this is a gospel for Gentiles, right? Not just Jews. Why did they go to the synagogue? Well, I think there's two reasons. I think number one is Paul loves Israel. You get that through his letters, don't you? Paul just, he loves Israel. He wants Israel to be saved and he says over and over again, Lord, I would die so that Israel could be saved, effectively, is what he says. But I think the second reason is it's kind of, it's, it's the one place where there's a whole lot of people who already just believe in one God, right? Um, the Roman belief most of the time was this pagan kind of belief in multiple gods, uh, but this is a place where people just believe in one God already. So it's kind of like the low-hanging fruit, so I think in, in, for Paul, it's probably like the, this is the most evangelism, evangelism bang for your buck. Okay, so he's like, he's like I'm going to get more converts going to a synagogue than I will elsewhere. Eventually, they go to other places and we'll see this unfold as they travel through to, to various different places. But to start with, they go to the synagogue. And then there's Salamis, the city that they go to. Sadly, it has nothing to do with salamis. I did look it up. Um, I do like salami, but no, it's, uh, it's named after some Greek god or something like that, and salami is named after the word for salt, so completely different etymologies, nothing to do with each other. I kind of like to picture that there was salami there, uh, but probably not. It's the second largest city on the island of Cyprus, okay, and it's the former capital under Greek rule, so it was a good place to start, I think, for Paul and his band of travellers. Verse 6, let's keep going. When they, had heard, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who 
who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is, what, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So it looks like the team are not stopping at synagogues only in Salamis here. They continue their journey uh, from the east coast of Cyprus all the way through the whole of the island, it says, probably at this new Roman road that had been built not too long before we have in the history books. Uh, and, they, and they are there long enough to get a reputation. Because what happens is this Sergius Paulus, the, the proconsul of the island, a proconsul is a, is a Roman-appointed ruler of a particular area. He hears about them. So they've already got a reputation. He hears about them and he calls them to come to him. What does that kind of remind you of? Does it remind you of Cornelius a little bit? Um, you've got this guy who um, is wanting to... So he's he heard a message and he wants to hear more about it. So he's intrigued, isn't he? Um, but then there's this fellow, Elimus, or Elimus. It's probably from an Aramaic word that means magician or wise man. But he's also known as Bar-Jesus, which just means in Hebrew means son of Jesus. Bar is son. So son of Jesus or son of Joshua or Yeshua, depending how you say it. Um, so Jesus is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua, right? Or Yeshua, if you're going to say it properly. So yes, Jesus himself was called Joshua or Yeshua to people who spoke Hebrew. Um, but it's, it's, it was a common enough name at the time. Anyway, you've got this guy, Elimus by Jesus, uh, and he's a Jew, but he's also a false prophet. In other words, he claims to speak for God, but he does not speak for God. So Elimus, he... Uh, he, he gets in the ear of this proconsul Sergius Paulus and he, he makes it his mission to shut the missionary band down, doesn't he? He's opposed to them. He wants to turn the proconsul away from the faith. His reasons for doing this, we don't know for sure, but we can have a pretty good guess. He's probably the most influential person on the island, apart from the proconsul himself. And so, um, no doubt, he enjoys all the privilege that this brings and he sees these guys as a threat. But just put yourself for a second in the, in the sandals of Paul and Barnabas and Mark. Who was the last reader they, who was the last leader they came across who had a, a hostile Jewish person in his ear? Who would that have been? It was Agrippa, Herod Agrippa. Because do you remember, we just looked at it, Paul and Barnabas had been sent down to Jerusalem. And who else was in Jerusalem that they brought back with him? Mark. So these three men were all in Jerusalem when Agrippa had the Jew, Jewish leaders in his ear and ended up killing James. So that's what's going through their heads. How would you feel if you were in that situation? Just picture yourself there. How would you feel? But what happens next is phenomenal. Verse 9, But Paul, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, that's to Adelimus, and he said, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Number one, Paul's getting crossed off the Christmas card list. But number two, it's a complete smackdown. This is the first time Saul the Jew here is referred to by his Greek name, Paul. I think it's something of a recognition of this change in who he is, that his, his, his mission is to the Gentiles. So he takes a, a Greek name rather than his Jewish name. So Paul is filled with the Holy Spirit, it says. 
Now, we've hit this topic a few times through the book of Acts, filled with the Holy Spirit. The implication is that he was not filled with the Holy Spirit just prior to that. Do you get that? He said because he was filled with the Holy Spirit, he did X. But the implication, he was not filled with the Holy Spirit before that. But aren't we indwelt with the Holy Spirit at conversion, Christian? Well, yes, we are. So how does this work? Well, there are, again, two different experiences of the Holy Spirit. There is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that happens uh, and is a promise to every single believer. So if you, are, if you believe in Jesus, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is how the fruits of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, this is how we express the fruits of the Spirit through the working in our inner man of the Holy Spirit inside of us. That's the indwelling. But then there's this second kind of experience as well, which happens as often as God wills. And it can happen, and then it can stop happening. And then it can happen again, and it can stop happening. It's, it's God's will to fill a believer at a particular time for a particular purpose, and very often we see that it's for the purpose of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And that experience is variably described in the New Testament as, as coming upon, or filling, or baptism, or moving upon. So Paul is moved upon by the Holy Spirit in this extraordinary way, and he looks intently at this man, and what does he say? Let's read it again. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, in this verbal version of a Mike Tyson kind of right hook, it would be easy to miss something spectacular that Paul is saying. Yes, he's putting this guy in his place. Under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this is not the normal way to treat people. If, if you're wondering, this is not how we treat people. My thing's got to make a noise because I just touched a button. Let's just turn that down. Um, you don't treat people like that, generally speaking, but he's under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So yes, he, what he's saying is true. This guy is, is basically not a good guy. He's a villain, okay? And we also recognize something that, that it is Satan who is behind this attack that Elimus is making. It's Satan who's behind it. But what you don't want to miss is this, that God has straight paths. Did you notice that in the text? That God has straight paths. What does it mean? It means that God has clear paths to people's hearts. That God sees the people who are ready to respond to him and he's a straight path to their heart. And he cares when people get in the way of his straight path. He cares about it. And then he uses his people to intervene to stop people from blocking the straight path. I love his perfect plans. I love God's omnipotence. I love that he works with the will of his people to achieve his own will. God has straight paths to people's hearts. It's our job to be on his path not to try and to make our own path. But Paul continues, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed, and he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so we get to see the final big theme of the passage, overcome or, or overcome by the Spirit. See, Paul did not have to think up his best retort or how to plan to get to the proconsul when Elimus wasn't there. It says that he was full of the Holy Spirit and was in that state that he overcame. So those are our three main themes. We seek in faithfulness. We go in obedience. We overcome 
in faith. We seek, we go, we overcome. Easy, right? Done, I can just walk off. Done, no. Well, it's the problem, isn't it? It's all well and good to say seek and go and overcome, but this is literally an impossible task for us to achieve on our own. We cannot seek the Lord as we should. We recognize this. There are a thousand competing voices in my mind every day. We can't even hear ourselves think half the time, let alone hear God's prompting. We can't even go as we're supposed to. There's so many things to do. We've got enough trouble keeping on top of our own responsibilities, don't we? I do. And overcoming, really? I mean, do you know how difficult it is to do that? At my school, or at my workplace, or in my extended family, or with my children? How difficult, or in myself? Do you have any idea how hard that is? Earlier this year, we had a little incident on the farm. Uh, The cows got out. Uh, which is never a good start, and um, you don't want the cows to get out. It makes the neighbours cranky, it's work, um, you can lose your cows, it's expensive, all that stuff. Anyway, we had a guy come fix the fence, um, that kind of got the cows in the first time, and then he, he started fixing the fence, and he went and had lunch, and then he didn't realise the cows had gone through the fence while he was fixing it, so he fixed the fence with the cows on the wrong side of the fence, which was kind of annoying. I mean, we couldn't do anything about it at the time. Uh, and they wandered off and went to the neighbor's place. And the neighbor texted us uh, one afternoon saying, I've seen your cows, they're right near the corner fence, near your boundary fence, so you should be able to get them in. And I'm at work in Raymond Terrace, and I get home, and it's dark. Uh, and I'm in my Prado, and it's also raining. And, and it had been raining for a couple of days, so it was pretty boggy on the ground. And I, in, in my... Um, Brad's seen how I drive, okay? It's not... It's not pretty. I, I got told, I think, by Dave DeKen when I'm driving that I just seem to rush everywhere. But um, in my rushed state, I decide I'm going to go, go get these cows. I'm not going to be a nuisance to my neighbour. I'm, I'm, I'm going to relieve the anxiety of having the cows escaped. It's, it's kind of not a nice place to be. So I, I go out and I start driving through the bush to try and chase up these cows. And it's boggy and, and, um, and you know, because it's boggy, you've got to go a bit faster. Um, otherwise you get stuck. Um, legitimate truth. And so I'm, I'm driving through and then I get kind of halfway to where the cows were and I just realised this is not a good idea. It is, it is not a good idea. I should not be doing this in the rain, in the dark, almost getting bogged. So I decide to turn around. So I turn around and uh, start heading back towards our, our boundary fence again, uh, to our gate. And halfway back, Boom! I've hit something, I hit a stump, okay? And the front of the car is, is buckled under and I couldn't even, it's a four drive, I couldn't even get the car off the stump. That's how wedged onto the stump it was. So I've had to go get the tractor, bring the tractor around, get a chain, drag the Prado off the tree stump. Um, and you're just kind of going, oh, what damage am I, what damage am I doing? What damage am I doing? Um, but there's really no other option, it has to come off. Anyway, um, so I'm just feeling like a bit of an idiot. And then I, the, the wheel arch is kind of dug into the wheel, so I kind of pull that back up again. And then I'm, I'm driving back to the shed, and I really don't want to tell Kendall. Like, I really don't want to tell Kendall about this. Um, Kendall is very gracious with me. She really is. Um, but I really didn't want to tell her. But the problem is, 
the wheel is buckled like this, um, and I need the jack to change the wheel, and the jack's up at the house where Kendall is, so I have to call her and explain, uh, did so. Um, she comes down with the jack, very wisely, I thought, very wisely, she barely made eye contact. <laughs> and she drove in, the jack is in the boot, I go get the boot, come back, she drives away, ne'er a word was said, and, um, and there I am in the rain, drenched to the bone, jacking up a car to put a spare wheel on, and, uh, and then the wheel doesn't come off. I've got the nuts off, but it's not coming off the hub. And uh, I just had through my mind, you know, this kind only comes out by prayer. Um, <laughs> so with prayer and the, and, the, and the help of a crowbar, it, it, I managed to get it off eventually, change the wheel. Um, anyway, I, I'm thinking, this is just not what I re need right now. Um, the truth is, it's exactly what I needed because the reality is it was really difficult. And it pretty much broke me at that moment. I was reminded for the umpteenth time that I'm simply not enough. I can't do it on my own. Because there's all sorts of stuff going on that lead up to this point of stress and stress with work and all the stuff you work out in a marriage and kids and responsibilities. And, uh, and, and this is what led to me into this rush mode this rush mode, rush, rush, rush. Um, but I can't do it on my own. So I begin to pray in the rain, in the mud. I'm ashamed to say that that, that prayer part didn't come earlier. Um, I'd love to tell you that things got better immediately, that the clouds moved away and a, 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 a moonbeam just shone right on the work that I was doing. No, it didn't happen like that. In fact, it still took a couple of days for me to get to the point where I could hear God's voice again. What's amazing is the difference it makes when you're hearing from God rather than hearing from your head. Just this week, I had an after-hours shift at the hospital. It was a 16-hour day. I did my day job, went to my night job, did the night job, driving home. It's about 11 p.m. For some reason, I decide to go the back way. I go the back way, uh, and there's a guy there on my side of the road facing the wrong way. His, his headlights are facing towards me. Um, and so I pull up and say, hey, you right? He's a young, young guy, a P-plater. He's been T-boned at, at a roundabout, and then the other guy's just left him there. Um, and he's shaken up. He's really shaken up. And uh, just kind of calm him down a bit. You know, you're okay. And he pulls out his phone um, because as soon as it happened, he started recording because he's a millennial. Um, so he, <laughs> he records on his phone. And it's him. The, the phone, the video is him just swearing about all the stuff, stuff in his car. Oh, this, oh, stuff, that, oh, stuff, you know more graphic. Uh, and then he's kind of showing me the video. He's like, oh, sorry for the swearing. But he wanted to show me that this guy on film admitted to hitting him um, and admitted to doing the wrong thing. Um, anyway, we get to the end. I'm kind of calmed him down. So I, I helped him. Uh, I, I pulled the arch off the wheel because uh, I had had practice at that. Um, and because he, he couldn't drive it off the road because the arch is digging into the wheel. He couldn't get it. So I helped him to get the car off the road. Um, and I, was, I, was, I should have been, after 16 hours of work, a long week, I should have been preparing a sermon, I should have been grumpy, um, but it's been a good week. It's been a really good week. Uh, and as I'm kind of saying goodbye to this guy, he's like, 
oh, thanks so much. And he goes, God bless you, like this. I was like, so I suspect he's probably a Christian. Um, and it was an opportunity to just be a blessing to this guy randomly that I'll never meet again. Um, but I think that's what happens when, you're, you, when your head is in the right place, when you are actually hearing from the Lord rather than hearing from this stuff. This is the kind of thing that goes on. The reality is we cannot seek God without help. We cannot go the way we should on our own. We cannot overcome in our own strength. Sometimes life gets in the way. Sometimes we get distracted, we get overwhelmed, we get scared, we put things off that we know we need to do now. Sometimes life is downright difficult. Then people stand against us even when we're doing what's right. Here's the reality. There's nothing in the book that you hold in your hands that says that your mission will be easy or smooth sailing. There's nothing in that book that says you will be rich, that you will be healthy, or that people won't give you a hard time. Or that you will wake up each day connected and in tune to his will. There's nothing in the book that says that. And all we've seen with Paul and Barnabas, we don't have capacity to do what they do. But this is the good news, you don't need capacity. Did you notice quite, something quite spectacular about when these disciples seek, go and overcome? What was the common denominator with all three? They are all done in the Spirit. Every single one. They are all done in the Spirit. We seek to hear from the Spirit. We go by and with the Spirit. We overcome by the Spirit. You don't need the capacity because Jesus gave you the Spirit. Remember, before Jesus was crucified, right before he was betrayed in the garden, what he promised to do once he ascended to the Father, he said in John 14, 16, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him and he dwells, dwells with you and will be in you. Which is why Jesus was able to say at the very end, and behold, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. See, when Jesus was put on that cross, our guilt was put on him. And as a result of that, as a result of his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand, he was able to, he was able to send the Holy Spirit to us. Because he has taken our sin nature on himself, he has put, he's put his perfect nature on us and he continues to do that. Because of that, we can receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of power, and all he's asking you to do is simply to let go. Because we don't need to muster the strength to continue. We, we simply need to submit to the work of the Holy Spirit. We don't need to go alone. We go with him always. And we don't need to seek him in some impossible way. He is with us. We just need to listen. We just need to listen. The promise is this. That as we let go and simply seek him in the strength that he provides, that he will direct us. He already has overcome. Let's look at that final verse one more time as we wrap up. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had overcome. He believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It is God's power and teaching of the Lord, not the teaching of Paul, that led to the proconsul believing. So let me wrap up with two questions. Number one: What is your Cyprus? What is your Cyprus? What is God calling you to right now? You may already be exactly where you're supposed to be. Like the three in Antioch who stayed while Paul and Barnabas and Mark left. 
Or maybe he's calling you to something different. I don't know. Maybe there's a small shift he wants you to make. And the second question is, who or what is your alarmist? What are you facing at the moment that seems insurmountable? Maybe it's something you've been dealing with for years, that you've just accepted as a reality that needs to change. Maybe it's something that happened yesterday. Maybe there's a person in your life who's making your life difficult. Whatever it is, know this. Jesus said this, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, he says, I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that promise that you have overcome the world indeed. Lord, we thank you that you not only dwell in us by your Spirit, but that you come upon us at the right time as well. Lord, thank you that all we need to do is to let go, to, to seek you, to listen. And Lord, this is what we want to do. We want to listen better. We want to go more faithfully and we want to overcome more and more as you lead us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you that your gospel is a gospel of not only of forgiveness, but a gospel of freedom, Lord, a gospel of liberty, to be able to follow the will that you have for us. We thank you that your gospel is one that takes us from where we are and moves us to where you want us to be. So, Father, as, as we go now, as we share some fellowship together, I pray that you would be in our conversation, Lord. May we be encouraging one another with these things. To seek, to go, and to overcome, Lord God, we pray that you would work mightily in this body and across the world. In Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. I think John's on his way. So. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.